It's Sunday morning. It's September 29th, 2013. Our message is called On the Other Side. You know, on the other side of a thing, it looks a lot different than on this side of it. You might have leaned up against a fence at some place in your life and said the grass sure looks greener over there. And then you got on the other side and found out it had all the same problems as the place you left, huh? The other side of a thing gives us a unique perspective. Before we get into that message this morning, I want to tell you why I'm a little bit nervous. I love to preach about the baptism in the Holy Ghost. I love the presence of God. I like to talk about the saving power of Jesus. I love to preach about the commitment that is ours to follow him with a reckless abandonment of self. The thing that I like to talk the least about in this world is money. Money is merely a means for us to accomplish what God called us to do. I don't want any more of it than I need to complete God's will. And I only become concerned about it when I have less of it than I need to complete God's will. LCMF supports work in Germany, Romania, India, Sri Lanka, Kenya, Peru, Honduras, Mexico, and Iraq. Does that surprise you? That's a long list of countries for a church this size, isn't it? In addition to those trips, feeding projects, building programs, I mean, we built physical buildings in many of those places. We support seven missionaries on a monthly basis. Every month, first checks that we write, seven. That comprises some 40% of everything that this ministry takes in. I want you to think about that on a household level. What if 40% of everything that you netted went out the door to God's work? This church runs like a big household, and that's our commitment. Additionally, Matthew and Cassidy and Eric and Jennifer and truthfully, Judah are full-time employees of the church. Not everybody gets paid, but we are full-time employees. You get Matthew for a whopping minimum wage-like figure. You get Eric for the same, especially when you divide it by the number of people that are working. Not up here to whine about that. I want to tell you that around the world, pastors, missionaries, widows, and orphans depend upon the support that comes out of this building. There's almost not a day that I don't get a call from one of the five continents on which our ministry is now working. I'm going to tell you the truth, it's a joy to talk to them, but it is also a crushing pressure because I know when the phone rings, they need something. I know that. Even when there's a testimony involved, which little hungry kid do you want to tell he's not going to eat today? It's difficult to do, Debbie. It is. I appreciate that y'all understand that. I have a short video that I want to play for you. I thought it was funny. Anybody in here like donuts? Can you look at me and tell that I like donuts? Sometimes if I have a difficult subject to broach with somebody, I will wrap it in humor. It's a whole lot easier for me to be a sledgehammer than a polishing cloth. 
And you can tell when something's particularly sensitive to me because I usually make a joke about it. That's full disclosure. Here it comes. What is this? Donuts. Okay. Go ahead. I can have one. You can have them all. These are for me. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Why? I don't know. You just, you look hungry. That is a good donut. All right, well, I got to hit the road. You mind if I, you mind if I just take one for the road? Just, just one. Well, I am really hungry, and I missed breakfast this morning. I'm probably going to miss lunch, and I was going to take these home to my wife and kids. Really, to be honest, they got to last me the whole week. Come on, church, is that a powerful message? Not one of us has a thing in here that the living God didn't give us. I know many of you are working really hard. I want you to know that your pastors share that very same work ethic. How many of you have spent serious time with me? I want to tell you a little bit about what a normal week looks like. On a Sunday morning, this last Sunday we were up at 4. We were here praying with people at 5, 10 a.m. After worship practice, after prayer, after prison ministry, we met with a team of leaders. We taught those leaders about spiritual warfare. After that, we met with the elders to discuss church discipline for those that are so far struggling that they're in danger of being overcome by the world. After that, we did a discipleship meeting. That evening, we crawled in bed around 1 o'clock in the morning. Get a whopping six hours of sleep get up on a Monday and do all four-wheel brake job. How many of you like brake jobs? Come on, Dustin's the singular person in here that works for brake check. You know who I do not work for? Brake check. <laughs> and everything that I touch breaks when I touch it. But we believe that it would be an inappropriate use of the church's finances to pass off on a mechanic a job we can do ourselves. So we did that and then studied for the book of Revelation, and taught on the seven churches of the book of Revelation. After that three-and-a-half-hour teaching, Matthew and I got in a car and drove 18 hours through the night while everyone else was sleeping. When we arrived in Colorado, it was no longer Monday, it was Tuesday afternoon. Within an hour of being in Colorado, we met a couple whose daughter had killed herself in the last 24 hours. Is she worth Jesus' time? Are grieving parents worth pastors visiting? You know, what we wanted to do was go to sleep. But what we did was stay up as late as they were willing to stay up and minister to a hurting family. The next night, we got to sleep five hours, and it was a good five hours. Then we got to go move furniture all day in Denver. Because a missionary that's returned home needed furniture moved. 
Thursday, we got up and we got to do something fun. We went to Pikes Peak, the 14,000-foot place where my truck no longer worked. So we got to work on a vehicle in 32-degree weather with 47-mile-an-hour winds. I'm not whining. I want you to know that life in ministry does not look all that different than life somewhere else. To cap that day off at 5.30 in the afternoon on a Thursday, we got in a car and drove from Denver through Oklahoma, through Kansas, right down into the top of Texas, another 18 hours without sleeping. Got into town Friday just in time to have an evening potluck at the church that we left after midnight at. Get another five or six hours Saturday night, bringing our total for the week to less than most people get to sleep in one night. And Saturday, we did a four-hour worship service with the Spanish church. But no matter, we left at 1 a.m. last night and arrived here this morning before 5. You know why? Because we love the Lord and we want to pour our lives out. We're not holding anything back. I love my bed as much as you do, and I spent 100 days out of the country last year because I believe that God wants all men to be saved. Amen. Let me read you something out of Timothy. Is that okay? Yeah. Actually, just put it on the screen for us, Susan. This would be 1 Timothy. It would be the second chapter and the second verse. I want to tell you what motivates this ministry. Then I'm going to share with you a teaching, and then I'm going to preach to you. Is that okay? You get a little bit of all of the above. Is it okay if I'm just honest with you this morning? Yeah. I want to continue to do the things we do because I'm proud of them. I want to continue to feed those who are struggling to eat. I want to continue to provide transportation for folks who can't get to church because I believe God wants them in church. I want to go to every continent on the globe and tell people about Jesus because we have a proclamation to issue. For kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants a few men to be saved. Who wants white men to be saved. Who wants black men to be saved. Who wants a few select rich men to be saved. He wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Friends, God desires the salvation of the world. What is your greatest desire? I mean, this scripture goes on to say he gave us life as a ransom for all men. He bought and paid for them, and they do not yet belong to him. Do you belong to the Lord this morning? I'm going to tell you that the poor of the world those who are the most oppressed by the devil cannot afford to get on a plane and come here. So life-changing ministries goes to them. We go without sleep. We go, I'm, I'm not going to ask, don't raise your hands. You think it's a prudent thing to have a retirement? Do you think it's a prudent thing to have a savings account? Do you have a little something socked away just for an emergency? Because your pastors don't. We have abandoned all for the gospel. That's not a joke. There's no health insurance, despite what Obama keeps saying. 
We have thrown in our lot with the presence and power of God, and he has not let us down. I'm not here to whine to you. I'm not here to say that I don't have something I need. I'm here to tell you that obedience makes the kingdom go round. It's the only way for anybody to be truly blessed is to do the things the Lord tells us to do. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 9. Let me tell you the other half of this, why you're hearing this today. An elder brought me a letter someone sent him. And in the letter they said, I've been in your church a year and I've been blessed. But I only recently found out that I'm supposed to tithe. I was a little surprised by that. But then it occurred to me, maybe I hadn't done a good job teaching this. So today we'll state it emphatically. I don't want your money. Jesus wants your life. And yet, if you have a dollar in your pocket, 10 cents of it belongs to the Lord. And if you hang on to that 10 cents, you are stealing from God. Could it get any clearer than that? If you have 10 carrots in your backpack, one of those carrots belongs to God. You know why? He gave them all to you, and he wants you to contribute to the needs of others. Yeah, you don't get applause for saying that, do you? You know what? I'll stand here and tell you you're all champions. Give you gift certificates and donuts, pat you on the back, and send you on your way to an unproductive, unfruitful life. But I'll feel better about myself because the seats will be full. I would a whole lot rather have a handful of people who would sacrifice their all for the King of Kings. When I look out here, I see people that have known me since I was a spoiled, violent teenager. When the gospel entered my life, my priorities changed. I'm not on the wrong side of the cross. I'm on the other side of the cross. And I know the sacrifice he made for me, so I cannot make less for him. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he gives instructions. This is 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 7. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Our God is not handicapped by what you don't have. All he is asking for is a portion of what he's already given you. On TV, they will tell you to go into debt to support their ministries. I say it's a lie from hell. On TV, they will tell you, if you send them $100, God will give you $700. I refuse to appeal to your greed. If that is your motive for giving, God would never bless it, and you and your money are destined for hell. Is that clear? But if you love the Lord so much that you can't help but share your life with his service, you can't help but be blessed. This is not a church where we have contorted the word of God for a financial system of greed, fishing for funds rather than men. I realize that it's ripe all around us, and that's one of the reasons I shy away from the subject, is I don't want to be lumped in with those people. However, it's necessary that men of God stand up and rightly divide the word. Or else, as I'm told in the letter, the sheep don't know what to do. A man came on the bus three weeks in a row 
And he said one of the strangest things, and I overheard it. And I thought, what's wrong with me? He said, Pastor, I've been in the church three weeks, and I have no idea where to give an offering. I want you to know how to participate with us. You know why? Without the people of God being obedient, there's no way to get to those people in Peru that we just left. There's no way to see Roy's life restored. There's no way to see Domitila healed. There's no way to see these people get right with God. Because nobody gave me a plane ticket to go. There's no way to support children's work in Sri Lanka. Orphanages that we built with our own hands in Africa. If it doesn't start with the obedience that comes from God's people. God did not tell you to give from what you don't have. He tells you to sacrifice, to set aside, to take a portion of what you do have. We are not asking you for something that is not there. I am not telling you to write a check in faith and expect God to cash it. Those liars deserve what they get. I'm telling you that when you harvest your fields, whatever your field is, a portion of whatever comes into your house belongs to God. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles. We'll be in the 31st chapter. Say there when you're there. In the 31st chapter, under the reign of Hezekiah, we see something that has been an example to the church for ages. How many of you believe that you've received something that Israel only saw foreshadowed? Did you receive something good? Yes. How many of you believe that the fullness of the Spirit has fallen upon the body of Christ? Yours is the adoption as sons. Is that good? The baptism in the Holy Ghost, a permanent infilling with God's presence. Is it good? Yeah. I want you to hear what people had in Christ and what they did before Christ even walked the earth. This were just people living in anticipation of what has come upon you. Verse 4. He ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due the priest and Levites so they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. There is a portion that was due to the Levites and the priest. How would you feel if your paycheck was optional? Come on, Cody, you work for a living. When you got to Friday, you know, maybe you did, maybe you didn't get paid. I had a job like that once. I quit. When she decided pay was optional, I decided work was optional. And I optioned out. There is a portion that is due those who have devoted themselves to the law of the Lord. My kids like to eat just like yours. As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain. You know why it doesn't say last fruits? They did not bring in the harvest, meet all of their needs, and then if there was something left over, give to the Lord. Of what they received from God, the very first thing that they did was set something aside to go back to God's work. You say, but I don't have much. Whatever you have came from God. 
Did we not learn from a widow's might that it's possible for someone to give out of their poverty and it be more than a rich man gives out of his abundance? God's math is fuzzy math. It is. He's the only God I know that can take five loaves, five fish and two loaves and end up with 12 basketfuls left over. He's the only God I know that you can count three and yet he says it's one. He's the only God I know that contorts math to his kingdom. He does that because he wants to show you a way that you can be blessed. As soon as the order went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, oil, honey, and all the goods that the field produced. They brought a great amount of tithe of everything. I refuse to answer questions about gross and net. I'm telling you to tithe. If you can figure out how to tithe a net carrot rather than a gross carrot, more power to you, but that's not how my heart works. The men of Israel and Judah who lived in the towns of Judah also brought a tithe of their herds and flocks, a tithe of the holy things dedicated to the Lord their God, and they piled them in heaps. Look how small that offering box is. It's never overflowed. And yet, we've never been without. I do know what it is to miss a meal. I do know what it is to have a house in foreclosure. Does that shock you? It's been a lot of years. I know what it is to hide a car so that it's not repossessed. I'm not a stranger to the difficulties of life. And yet I refuse to lean on my own arm. I've put my whole heart in trust in the Lord. I'm convinced he'll do more with what is left over than I could do with the whole. They began doing this in the third month and finished in the seventh month when Hezekiah and his officials came and saw the heaps. <laughs> they praised the Lord and blessed the people. How many of you see a heap and praise the Lord? If you see a heap, it's usually a car that doesn't run, right? They were so excited for these mountains that symbolized the obedience of God's people. I suspect that Hezekiah was not hurting for cash. But I bet, in fact, what he did that encouraged the people here is he demonstrated out of his own life. And then they followed. By the way, next time somebody tells you that you'll be a $1,000 champion if you send them $100, ask them if it works in reverse. Tell them to send you $100 and God will send them 1000 because you want them to be blessed. I bet they hang up the phone on their prayer line. I lived one time to see this happen. We were in a men's meeting and a man gave a financial testimony. He praised God for blessing him. Since he was obedient, God had blessed him. The most difficult part about that is in those days, there were only about 20 of us and I took up the offering back then. I said, either the man's lying or he's decided to give to some other ministry while he goes here. You know how heartbreaking that was? Both options were terrible. I hope that you're not here eating the bread of heaven for year after year and not contributing to the work of God. I don't care what you contribute, but I hope that you are sharing with the people of God because there's not a day that goes by we're not feeding and housing people. There's not a day that goes by we are not giving our all for the gospel around the world. And I'm not ashamed to say that, not even a little bit. 
Hezekiah asked the priests and Levites about the heaps. And Azariah, the chief priest from the family of Zadok, answered, Since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and plenty to spare. See, when everybody is obedient, there is no burden upon anybody. Because the Lord has blessed his people and this great amount is left over. I want to teach you something today. A healthy church is not based on the generosity of a few. It is based on the sacrifice of all. A healthy church cannot be based on five or ten people giving all they have. A healthy church is based upon every person in the room getting some skin in the game. Are you proud when you find out that this ministry prays for somebody and they get out of a wheelchair? Are you proud? Are you proud when you find out a prostitute comes to the Lord and turns from her prostitution? Are you proud when you find out a marriage that was racked with adultery is now put back together and planting churches in other states? Are you proud? None of those things can happen without gas in our cars and electricity in our building. I'm asking you to help shoulder the load because God demands it. And if I failed to mention it for an entire year, as the letter said, then shame on me. I'm not a very good pastor, but I repent today. I'll never again sit and suffer in silence when I'm surrounded by the finest Christians I've ever met. I believe that if you're not doing something, it's solely because you don't know to do it. Because I can't fathom that you would know the good you ought to do and not do it. I don't think that's who you are. And if it is who you are, well, we're called life-changing ministries. Did this mic just drop out? I don't need a mic. There's an amount that was due the priests. They devote themselves to the law. These offerings were marked by generosity, and it was not a tithe of a few things. It was a tithe of everything. When all of the people became obedient, there was plenty to spare. There were leftovers, and their obedience brought blessing. Is there something I need to do, Rick? No, we're good. Turn with me then to Deuteronomy 14. Two more scriptures, and this beating will be over. Is that okay? Thank you, sister. I appreciate that. You don't get many amens from the pews when you're telling people what God requires of them. In Deuteronomy 14, listen to the way that verse 27 speaks this word. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Piro, say amen. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your town so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, say amen, Pirose, and the aliens and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. Now hear this last part. This is the witham. This is what's in it for you. And so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. I need you to hear this. The prosperity gospel is a devilish lie. 
Those people are pimps that are prostituting out the church. They are fleecing the sheep of God with promises of greed that are not spiritual in nature. They are devilish. But the truth of the gospel is that obedience does bring blessing. And that disobedience always yields something that the Bible likens to a curse. I don't say that. The Bible does. He said when you bring these things to the storehouse of the Lord so that the Lord your God may bless the work of your hands. We either live in a way that God can bless or we do not live in a way that God can bless. I've noticed the only way to get to an American's heart to really squeeze them hard is you mess with their house, you mess with their job, and you mess with their money. This is the area that God puts us in trials constantly and we call the devil. And it's because they're areas of idolatry. Our job is our self-sufficiency. Our house is the pride of life. Look what we have. Our money is the means to express our selfishness. Why did we buy the $45? That's too cheap, isn't it? Why did we buy the $120 jeans instead of the... What do my jeans cost? $28. And where do you buy them? Walmart, that's if we get a new pair. Why do we buy $28 jeans instead of $120 jeans? Because I think that that little label that you're paying for is simply an expression of your selfishness. Because I met people all over the world that don't have anything. Come on, at least one brother likes it. And he sits on the front row, amen. Deuteronomy 14, 29 says, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. One more Deuteronomy scripture. Hit the 24th chapter with me. Is that okay? Somebody say, I'm in chapter 24, Pastor. Here comes verse 19. You know, sometimes you people, you people, you people in the back, sometimes you all, you can't say that either, huh? Sometimes y'all, like the words that you hear in the church. And I see them posted all over Facebook, right? And reposted and reposted and reposted. I dare you to post this one. Deuteronomy 24, here comes verse 19. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. A generous heart is one that God can bless. A heart that looks after me and mine is not one that God can bless. All right. We done with money? Y'all get the point? I'm going to read you one more. But you don't have to turn to it. This is Exodus 34, 19. The first offspring of every womb belongs to me. You got a firstborn in here? <laughs> How many of you are a firstborn? How many of you, your mama and daddy got kids all over the world and you have no idea what number you are? <laughs> I had to be very careful my whole life because I wasn't sure who was siblings and who wasn't. I married one that came all the way from Alabama. I was pretty sure my people had never been there. The firstborn belonged to God. 
a Levite worked in the place of your firstborn. How grateful were you mamas and daddies for a Levite? He worked at the temple in the place of your firstborn. The first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from the herd or the flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. That's harsh, isn't it? Come on, look and say, that's harsh. You know why the donkey's neck was broken if it wasn't redeemed? Because when you're not redeemed, you're dead already. Come on, outside of Christ, you're dead already. But when a price was paid for you, when you became redeemed, how grateful are you to be delivered from death? Did you like the guy in the video? He's giving donuts. He didn't ask for them. He was just giving them. And did he enjoy them? Man, he didn't waste any time enjoying them. My mouth started to water when I saw that this morning. I hadn't had a donut in some time, and I, I like them. How selfish did he seem when he looked at the guy who asked for just one out of the box back, and he wouldn't give it. Did you like him? Be honest. Did you want to be friends with that guy? Do you want the people in here to be friends with you? Do you want the people in here to like you? The Bible tells us to live lives worthy of the call. It does. The Bible does not set an amount of money that you have to give. It simply sets a principle out there. One in every ten, at the very least, belongs to God. One out of every ten say, well, I don't have much. You got something. You have something. I know what it is to tithe vehicles. I know what it is to give away my jewelry. I know what it is to give away my sleep and my time with my family. There's a person in this church that spent so much time that belonged to my kids. And they never would walk quite right no matter what I said. They looked at me one day and they said, hey, could I just, could I, I, I know it's late, but could I have one more minute? I said, no, ma'am, you've had all the minutes you're going to get. She was crushed. I said, why should I steal from my children to give to you and you just want me to tickle your ear? Might be the first honest moment in her life because she began to walk right after that. Sometimes we just don't know what we should do. We don't know where to start. I'd like to tell you that a place to start in an American life is in your pocketbook. And one of the reasons that's the place to start is it's the most idolatrous thing in America. We snort cocaine through our $20 bills. We buy people sons and daughters. And we extort people for the glory of men with money. And we have the nerve and the audacity to write on those dollar bills, in God we trust. The paper money is the God that most are trusting in. And you want to know how you get free from the love of money? You learn to part with it with a joyful heart. You want to make somebody excited? You should see when you build a home for someone that's never slept under a roof. When I think about the money I've wasted in my life, I can't waste anymore. Firstborn sons, redeem all your firstborn sons. Then there is this unique phrase. 
This comes in Exodus 34, and it's the end of the 20th verse. No one, say no one. No one, no one is to appear before me. What's it say? Every human being is supposed to bring something to the Lord. What one person has may not be much, and what another person has may be an awful lot, and God is judging your heart. If you've been in this church a year and you honestly didn't know you were supposed to tithe, I will teach you to read because your Bible says to do it. The sign says to do it. The screens remind you every week to do it, and the people around you are doing it. Let's not let the work of God fall on the shoulders of a few. Amen? Amen. All right. Y'all want to talk more about the other side? <laughs> Somebody say, save me. Help me. Help me. What time we start today? I need help in the sound booth. I was nervous. What time? 1115 is when we started. I guess I preached a message, didn't I? Y'all got somewhere to be? It's raining. What else were you going to do today anyway? Have you ever thought about all the things that we thought on this side of? Oh, we just can't do it. Ain't no way. Do you know what the first world bench press record was? It was set in 1898. The first world bench press record. What would you guess it might be? Anybody? The first world bench press record ever set was 361 pounds, and the man who did it weighed about 360 pounds. Not a giant accomplishment. Praise God, Spence, we could do a push-up. Not five, not ten, a single, you know, a push-up. That's the world bench press record in 1898. I bet it was shocking in 1995 when it soared to 741 pounds. Now, how does that 361-pound record look? Pretty puny, huh? But at the time, it was the best in the world. The other side of the record, it seemed small, easy, trivial. But until it had been done, it was a mountain that nobody could climb. Of course, in 2008, a guy bench pressed 1,075 pounds. That's a lot. How does the 741-pound one look now? See, when we get to the other side of a thing, everything changes. Any of you young enough? Uh, that's not the right way to say that. Any of you mature enough to remember Roger Bannister? Does anybody know who that is? Jay Williams knows. Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile in 1954. It was considered something that could never be done. People had tried and tried and tried. His time was 3 minutes 59.4 seconds. That's pretty fast for a mile, isn't it? Any of you running sub four-minute miles in here? You know today the record is a full 17 seconds less than that, and young men in high school now can break Bannister's record? Why is that? Because when you get to the other side of a barrier, what looked like it couldn't be crushed, God has shown you can be. By the way, do you know the guy who bench pressed 741 pounds, how he broke the record? They lied to him about the weight. He didn't know he was breaking it. If he had known he was attempting a world record, he might not have done it. He thought he was bench pressing 10 pounds less to tie the world record. That's something, isn't it? I don't know if it's all in our head, Dovey, but it is a significant 
hurdle. We see things as undoable, and the Lord shows us that they can be done. i got to get off the financial topic, but I can't help it. You might see it as undoable to be obedient to the Lord in this area until you've been doing it a while. And then all of a sudden you can't imagine that you ever lived in disobedience and shame so long, that you ever had to duck your head when you were around those who were holy. 1947, Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier. Do you know the sound barrier is broken hundreds of times every day now? I mean, at one time, it couldn't be done until somebody did it, and now everybody does it. How many barriers did Christ show us can be broken? Death can be overcome. Poverty can be overcome. Sickness can be overcome. There is no barrier that cannot be broken. Turn with me to Micah 2.13. On the other side. Say there when you're there. there. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them. The Lord at their head. There is nowhere that the Lord is asking you to go where he did not go first and kick down the barriers that would have prevented you. We serve a mighty God. We serve a victorious King Jesus. And if he asks you to face hell, death, and the grave, it's because he's been there and he has whipped it. There are barriers that seem uncrossable to us until the supernatural power of God enters you and suddenly what nobody could do, even a child can do. I have lived long enough now to see things I thought never could occur occur with such commonality that you could even take it for granted. There was a time period I was not sure that the baptism in the Holy Ghost was real until it happened to me. And since then, I have prayed for thousands of people, and it happened to them. But before it happened to me, I didn't pray for anybody. It was a barrier. I wasn't sure until Christ kicked it down in my life. There was sin I didn't think I could beat until I did because his spirit was in me. What is overwhelming to you? What's got you hemmed in like the Red Sea? What do we need God to part? It all starts with an obedient step somewhere. When we're obedient, the living God comes through for us. Turn with me to Exodus 26. If you're sitting here counting the cost, going, oh my God, how long can this guy preach? I can assure you I can go a long, long time. But today, today, I want to leave you with something that's encouraging and not on a financial note. So we're not going to go that much longer. I want to go to reach a point, something that I want to leave you with that's good. So you don't walk out of this church and say, all they want is my money. In fact, look at your neighbor and say, I'm not going to lie about that, Pastor. Now, you didn't all say it. Come on, I can see you. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm not going to lie about that, Pastor. Because you don't want this pastor talking about you, do you? I got that pulpit up there, man. I'll put your picture on the World Wide Web. 
<laughs> I'm kidding. I did go to a church where they had a bully pulpit, but I'm not doing that. Are you in Exodus 30, 26? Yeah. I'm not. Y'all can wait on me just a second. What would you do if I sang out of tune? All right. Here come. Don't act like you don't know who Joe Cocker is. Here comes uh, Exodus 26, starting in verse 31. Make a curtain of blue, purple, scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim worked into it by a skilled craftsman. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain in front of the clasp and place the ark of the testimony behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Put the atonement cover on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put the lampstand opposite on the south side. For the entrance to the tent, make a curtain of purple, blue, and so on and so forth. It's incredibly detailed, isn't it? Come on, Nolan, are details in the Bible wasted? When we read these, we begin to lay out the furniture of the tabernacle. When Moses had the tabernacle built, Hebrew says that he looked into the heavens and he saw it. And then he built on the earth what he saw in the heavens. This was to teach mankind something. In fact, the way that you first entered into the whole structure was through what's called the gates of praise. What does that tell you about our God? The way to his heart is praise. How many of you can't, can't remember the last time you were truly thankful? I mean, we have a holiday every year to remind us, and we just eat turkey and watch football. The way to God's heart is to praise him for what he's already done. But when you hear Christians pray, what we usually are doing is begging him to do something we need him to do. Maybe we could start in our attitudes, financially, spiritually, and everywhere, just praising him for what he's already done. If you're still here, that's worth something, isn't it? We can say our lives have been hard, but you're going to have a hard time saying that the Lord hadn't done anything good for you. You're still here. After you went through those gates of praise, you were confronted with an altar. This was your first real barrier to get close to the Lord. Something about me has to change, and it's going to require something to die. Has the Lord shown you things that need to die in you? If you want to get close to the Lord, this is the first barrier you face. But you know what? He's shown you how to do it. You heard him pray in the garden. He was talking to his father. Was it an easy thing for him to do? He was so pressed, they say he sweat as if it were drops of blood. And what was happening in the garden? The Lord of glory was there, and it was difficult for him. And his will was being bent to his father's. He said, nevertheless, your will be done. That tells you that if Jesus could have found another way, if there was some other way that would be pleasing to God but easier, he would have done it. But there was no other way. This is what the altar teaches us. There's only one way to him, and it requires you to put to death whatever he says has to be put to death so that you might live. You know, it's a whole lot easier sometimes to do the big things than the little it's a whole lot easier to, to go on a missions trip to Africa than it is to maybe love your annoying neighbor. It just is. One's like a gnat that is bothering you all day, and another's like just one good fist fight, you know? Why did the ladies laugh? Don't act like you know what that is, Lindsay. Maybe Lindsay strapped a whooping on somebody. I don't know. 
I can tell you from experience there's a certain sense of satisfaction in it, but it doesn't always go your way. The Lord will allow you to be humbled. He will shove you into an altar and show you what has to die. When you left the labor, or when you left the altar, there was some place that you went. You walked to a brazen laver. This, this bronze item had a mirror in the bottom. It was a polished finish. And you were still bloody from the altar. You were still looking at what had to die that you might live. James likens the word of God to that labor. When we look in the word, we're supposed to look through the eyes of what had to die for you to live. That's entirely different than just looking for your best life now or for the champion that's in you or every day is Friday or any other ridiculous nonsense. You're looking at the word through the eyes of a man who just witnessed the death of an innocent so that you might live. Now how do you see it? You see a privilege to walk with God. You see an obligation to walk with him. You see a need to love those who are around you because look what God just did for you. When you washed in the labor, you're supposed to walk away a man who now is clean before the living God, who is ready to fellowship with the living God, and you walked into the most holy place. I'm sorry, the holy place. In there was the menorah of God's word. It is the light of God's word, his spirit illuminating to you what his will is. And there was the fresh bread of his presence. Oh man, there is no better feeling than to be in worship to have repented, got right with God, and feel his sense of approval. Now, I like steak. I mean, I really like steak. John, Joy, y'all live with me. If I can buy a steak, I'll buy it. If I cannot eat two meals to eat one that is a steak, I will not eat two meals to eat the one that's a steak. I, I love it. The kindest thing anybody ever did for me in Louisiana is some people with a farm killed a cow as a tithe, and they brought it, and I ate it. The King James didn't know how to translate that word showbread. And sometimes it's translated meat. And it's not meat, it's bread. But they were trying to express something about the satisfying nature of having his face look upon you with happiness. What would it be worth to know God was proud of you? Think about that for a minute. What if your life didn't have to be marked by failure and shame? What if you could put something to death, wash in his word, walk forward into his presence and know he was happy with you? Jesus Christ died so that God could be happy with you and you with him and feel a sense of fellowship that was better than the best meal you could have. They burned incense in the very same room to show that your prayer was ascending before the throne of God. But there was a curtain another barrier, something that stood between man and God. It said you can come close, but you can't come all the way. Turn with me to Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, pick up with me in verse 51. This is when Jesus died on the cross. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks split. The curtain was torn in two. From what to what? Talk about a barrier-breaking God. 
There was a curtain in the heavens because what was on the earth was a shadow of what was in the heavens. And Jesus tore the curtain there and he tore the curtain here. It tore from the highest heavens to the lowest earthly regions. There was now a way for you to get into the presence of God free from barriers. Men and religion have tried to put links in the chain. They've said, well, for you to get into the presence of God, you have to be a member of our organization. In fact, we're the assemblies of whatever. They've said, we are the church of God on earth, and I am his holy vicar. I speak for him, despite my funny-looking hat. They've put links in the chain to try to rebuild barriers between you and God and make you dependent upon them. They did this to extort you. They did this so that you had to pay them to be an advocate for you. I'm here to tell you today there are no links in the chain. And you don't pay a man to do something for you, for God. What happens is you love his presence. You love his work. And it is your very great joy to bring others into the presence of God. And we band together as communities of believers to learn better ways to do it, more effective ways to do it, to encourage each other, to spur one another on all the more as the day is coming. We do that because what we have is so good, we don't want one person anywhere in the world to miss out on it. Do you have something that's good? Have you been touched by the presence of God in a way that you wish those you love the most could experience. When Jesus Christ spoke to me, I knew my harshest critics would be my own family and they're the ones that I went to first because I loved them. And I wanted them to know what I know. Next, I went to my closest friends. After that, I started going to everybody that I knew because what happened to me was too good for anybody to be without. Have you experienced something like that? Because if you haven't, then everything we're talking about probably sounds like religious obligation. But if you have, then all of a sudden it takes on a whole other dimension. It's not something you have to do. It's something you get to do, and you're excited to do it. Because you just want somebody somewhere to know how good God's been to you. And you want them to experience the same. I thought today I was going to teach you all about a census and how we cross over from death to life and how a price had to be paid. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you that it's the obedient who are blessed. Amen. I'm going to tell you that every barrier that stood between you and the presence of God can be kicked down, and Jesus showed us how to do it. Amen. If there's something that's keeping you from being obedient in your life, kill it at the altar. Amen. Find encouragement through the washing of his word. And boldly, as Hebrews 10 says, come into his presence. Put one more scripture on the screen. Put Luke 12 in verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock. Do we still qualify for little flock? Yes. You know, we're twice as large as the average church in the United States. And we're an amoeba on a whale when considering the megachurches. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Is God trying to keep his kingdom from you, Steph? 
Is God trying to keep his kingdom from you, Fred? Is God trying to keep his kingdom from you, Natalie? He delights in giving you the kingdom. Shouldn't we delight in bringing the kingdom to others? Shouldn't we desire like him for all men to be saved? Let's stand to our feet.